Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? Or what about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent, stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course the habitats and ecosystems as well, but what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of Wild Chats. It is actually episode uh, 42, I believe, 42. Yeah, we had a quick yarn uh, last week, Jody. But uh, this time we have decided uh, we're not just going to talk to each other. We are going to talk to another guest and we have James Botcher from FNQ Nature Tours. Uh, welcome to the Wild Chat, James. Thanks, guys. And congrats on 42. That's an awesome achievement. And um, I think I've probably listened to 40 of them except my own. <laughs> didn't want to but uh and i'm yes really enjoying them so well done um yeah I, i'm loving listening to them on the way to work and on the way back i jump into these wild chats and i've been learning something every day so so well done to you guys yeah we're really enjoying it i think it's exactly what you just said we're learning something new i mean we're all in the wildlife industry and it's impossible to know everything impossible and so it's really cool to um, learn learn new things, but also get into some controversial topics. Yeah. That's what I like. I like the juicy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard Alberto Vale yet, and I imagine there'd be some interesting topics discussed in there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, was. we actually rehashed on some of the episodes last week when we had a catch up, and uh, yeah, there's been some interesting characters uh, throughout the journey. But uh, one of the most memorable ones for me was actually episode 40, one of our recent ones with Justin McMahon from oh, Rainforest Rescue. Yeah. Uh, I introduced him at the start as the man that knows everything and um, he certainly lived up to that he reputation pretty quickly. He's, <laughs> he's, he's very modest but he, he truly is um, like an encyclopedia and, and he's, mm. he's very dedicated and very humble, really humble. Mm. Beautiful. Well, we've got you, James, because we want to actually chat about um, something very, very close to our heart and something that is I guess at the uh, the core fundamental um, morals and values of what we do, and that is the magic of wildlife. And we've got you on here because we love what you do, uh, bringing wildlife uh, to people from around the world uh, through tourism. And uh, we want to start off by asking you a quick question. When I say the word wildlife, what does that mean to you? That's a good question. I mean, my first thought is if I was to go to a wildlife park, I would think that maybe, um, you know, it's a it's a wrong use of the word. I, I think that wild is, you know, an animal that has to survive every day by finding shelter and defending itself against predators. And to jump the gun, I think that's one of the most courageous things that animals do every day, which is one of the big things I wanted to cover in this chat with you guys is that 
one of the most exciting things about watching wild animals and, and, and photographing them is that every single day is a courageous day of, of survival, breeding, nesting, finding a partner. So in a, you know, in a wildlife park or a sanctuary, those sort of things don't exist. So for me, when, when you think of or you ask me what I think of the word wildlife, I, I picture big open plains, savannas, rainforests where native animals are going about their business every day and, yeah, doing their best to pass on their fantastic genes to the next generation. Mm, I like it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you've left you've left me like, hmm, I mean, my own little thoughts right now, like everything is going on up there. <laughs> and there goes my brain again. <laughs> Every time. When when we uh, when you mentioned the podcast, the, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, what what do I think about wild animals and what what attracted me to wild animals? And uh, and that's sort of the thought that I came up with. That's that's what's most attractive for me is that every time you're watching a, you know, a bird feeding on a flower or a tree kangaroo taking care of its joey, you think I'm going to go sit back in a comfortable vehicle with air conditioning and I'm going to listen to one of Jody's podcasts on the way home and I'm going to have dinner all prepared for me and like you know life's pretty easy in modern society and yet who knows what's going to happen to that, you know that young tree kangaroo like those beautiful Lumholtz photos you took the other day matt think what's going to happen to that joey tonight is it going to survive tonight is it going to wake up in the morning is there an amethystine python hiding and lurking in the in the tree so every day is a huge day of, of survival and that means wild animals are primed with instincts and 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 reactions which is just you know, it's something I think I envy wild animals in a, in a way because that's something we don't, you know, we don't, we, have, we don't have to fight for survival every day. But that's also really exciting. You know, it's it's a way to really test yourself. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of courageous people all around the world have found insane ways of testing themselves to the limits physically and put themselves in crazy situations. But we're surrounded by animals that do it every single day. And it's not because they want to, but because they have to. Mm, exactly i mean adaptations of whether it's the behavioral adaptations or the structural is what also attracts me to want to find out more about that particular animal but then it's the beautiful um other side of it where the, it's it's things that we don't get to see and it's that physiological adaptation like how is that animal um designed right down to the core to be able to survive in this yeah. weather in this in this moment in this um like environment of where it's living and it just fascinates me so much and that's that's also what made me fall in love um with wildlife and just that curiosity and yeah. it's like well what what does it have that for what is it what is it even doing that for um and then diving deeper and this is the thing about like um uh, animal books is when I get hold of an animal book that goes deeper than just this is where they're found, this is the coloration of it, and this is what it eats, I finally sit there and I just want to devour it. I just want to read so much because it's few and far between with these wildlife books that really go into full-on depth of a, a species or an animal specifically. Yeah, um, It's not something common that you'll come across in a bookstore, for example, especially not where I am. But when I do find it, I'll sit there and I want to know everything about it. But then going out into the wild and seeing it and with what you've learnt within your books or however you've learnt it, going to actually see it in the wild is super special because you're looking at it totally different, different perspective, but with so much 
um, knowledge of that animal, not just, oh, yeah, it's bound up a tree or it's it's this coloration or so forth. It's like how does a tree kangaroo actually climb that massive tree? How does it get down? How does it protect its babies? And that, that you know? that's going to make your experience so much more engaging because you're absolutely you're armoring yourself with knowledge. And and this is something I talked to Matt about last year. I said we are we're becoming really good at identifying um, animals, and especially after last year's bird challenge, like I felt like we both <laughs> became really really good at identifying. But I said to Matt, I said, you know what? I don't really feel like I've learned a lot about their ecology and their behavior, and like in that position, kind of, you know, we're in a competition. You have to, you want to identify as many species as you can. But now I'm sitting a lot more, you know, I'm sitting back a lot more without my camera and using my binoculars. And uh, especially when, when we're on tours, the last, the last tour I did last year where I was away for five days, I didn't take my camera at once. And I felt mm. so much more um, excited by the interactions because I wasn't distracted by taking a photo. Not that I have any problem with that. I still absolutely love photography and there's, and there's a huge means to that world and i think you know connecting people with with wild life through wild images is 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 brilliant but it is really nice to sit back and watch why animals do the things that they do and why do you have spikes on the side of your face or how is it you have a four-chambered heart and all of these things and how does that make you um unique and what what does that mean for your survival is that why you're alive and your ancestors are not and you're right if you can Armour yourself with that knowledge before you go out into the field and then when you see these things in real life, you're 100% right, Jones. I think that's just going to make that experience so much more rewarding and more mm-hmm. memorable too. Mm, absolutely. And this is something that came to my mind when I see a turtle eating and swallowing its food under the water. I'm like, how does it not how drown? Do Where, how do you not drown? How does it, yeah, and how does this work? Same with when I was snorkeling, when we were snorkeling with um, – in um, uh, South America, the what, what are those? Oh, those marine iguanas. Uh, marine iguanas, <laughs> yeah. and they're munching away. I'm like, I was watching them for ages. I'm mm. like, okay, so are they filling their cheeks? Are they going <laughs> to the surface? Are they swallowing? <laughs> I believe that's what they do, actually. Yeah. yeah, they fill their cheeks with the food and then head on up and, yeah. and swallow it. Yeah, yes, you do. They get really big, fat, puffy cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fascinating, right? And I think if you arm yourself with a little bit of knowledge prior, and this is where I think. Um, for me personally, this is how I, I like to educate people who come to zoos as well. So it's like we're just giving you a little bit of background information for you to then go out into the wild. So we yeah. used to do um, we used to do daintry or uh, wet tropics talks at one of the zoos I used to work at. Mm. But w- it was it was a huge encouragement to actually then go out into the rainforest and experience it knowing that, you know, this is this is how you can walk into it, close your eyes and, and listen, listen to the birds, smell at the same time, the smell that you're smelling. But we've already talked about what, what it is that they're smelling and why the rainforest smells that way or what you're hearing and then also what possibly could be living amongst where you're walking. I've got that background information to then go out and experience it. And we used to get feedback from people saying, I'm really glad I did that first. And then they got that bit of information, then they went out because they were self-guided tours, um, so they didn't have a tour guide as such. And I think that's really cool with just general, you know, a book or a, a, a documentary of some size, um, some sort definitely makes a difference. Yeah. There's, there's no such thing as having you know, having all the knowledge, you're constantly 
learning all the yep. time, you know, as soon as you think. And that's the biggest appeal to the wild world, I think, is the, the funnel of knowledge. It doesn't matter what you know about a certain subject. Uh, there's always going to be something out there that will capture you and inspire you and change your, the way you view things. Yeah. And it's funny, I got um, sent a video today uh, on Facebook by Rossi, believe it or not, and uh, he actually show, it actually shows a uh, Merton's water monitor in the water uh, in the shallows of this muddy creek and it uses its whole body and its tail and its head to create like a net, so a big U-shape. It's t- the tip of its tail is still on the land. Its head is now on the land, and it, and it slowly shuffles its whole body up onto the land, wow. and it, it scoops the fish that are in the water up onto the land, and then the Merton's water models start eating those fish. Wow. And that behavior, as far as I'm aware, has never been captured or displayed online because I've never heard of it, never seen it. I don't know anyone that has but it shows that a Merton's water monitor is essentially using his body like a, a net and that's, he's catching fish. I, I can hear a story from David White from Solar Whisper there with um, watching crocodiles from only a few months old and, and, you know, crocodiles like Lizzie that are fully grown that do a very similar thing where they swim along the edge of the bank really slowly with their arm out against the edge of the bank mm. and they just swim slow enough that anything that gets trapped between their face and their arm, they swing around and grab it. And I've, I've heard him say it many times and uh, and then, you know, a few times lucky enough to see it happening on real life on a tour and that's exactly what they do. They use their their body as a as a net and because their um, the nerves in their face are so sensitive, more sensitive than our fingertips, thanks, David, for that bit of knowledge as well, uh, yeah, they can quite <laughs> easily spin around and, and catch fish. That's That's very interesting about the Mertens though. I haven't heard of that myself either. Very yeah, and then we also look at the um, the cassowary as well. Does a similar thing by uh, sitting in the creek, oh, you know, right puffing up its plumage. Yeah, I've actually seen that. Before. Yeah, yeah. Um, cassowary yeah, getting the fish to come in and have a bit of a feed. It uh, and then they walk out of the water, shake themselves off, fish fall out, and have a feed <laughs> on some fish. <laughs> which is just, yeah, sit in a creek for it's, five it's minutes, and then as soon as all the fish get comfortable inside those bristles, having a nice scratch, like oh, this feels good. And then that's nice and dark and I can hide in here. Next minute, the cassowary just moves so aggressively and so fast and just shakes and then all these fish are just completely disorientated. Yeah, that's a cool trip. I was, I was um, um, when I was working for another company years ago, I was at Imogen Creek and I think on that day my guests had uh, another activity, like maybe it was the jungle surfing in Cape Tribulation. So I had a bit of a two-hour window and I was heading to Imogen Creek for a swim and I'd already been in the water and I was just sitting on a log on the bank putting my shoes back on and this cassowary comes out of the bush and completely, um, I thought maybe just ignored me. Little did I know it didn't notice me at all because it went down to the creek and sat in the creek for a while, for a few minutes, and I just sat there, no phone, no, no <laughs> nothing to report. <laughs> this is so amazing. And then after it, it had a big shake, I don't think it, actually caught any fish but after it had a big shake i think i knocked a stone with excitement and then it turned around and saw me and just bolted off into the bush again yeah surprise to cassidy if you sit still amazing like, things might happen around you <laughs> it's, like, it's like being on a things walk. might happen <laughs> turn your torch off for 10 minutes on a night walk and listen to all the things creep around you yes oh i remember i did that recently on uh on tour, I started uh, Dubaji Boardwalk. When I go in, I get them to put their torch to their feet and just follow the path in until we get to the fam- 
palm forest. Yeah. And then I get everyone to look up and I turn my torch on and you just see the canopy lit up with fan palms. It's magic. But anyway, I had this group. They're really apprehensive about, you know, turning their torches off. They're a little bit scared of the dark. And I got them out. I'm like, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. And we got them out there. And um, I just said, now, just stop and listen. These two white-tailed rats, dead set, just went nuts and started attacking each other. (laughs) So I've said just it's a really beautiful place. It's peaceful, relaxed, you know, turn the torches off and then just. (laughs) And then one one of the lady goes, (laughs) and she's quickly (laughs) turned the torch on. She shot it in my face. She's like, what is that? And I'm thinking, I don't know. I can't see. You just shined a torch in my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it was one of the best things but yeah look as soon as you just get comfortable and relax and just look around you and be observant you can see some truly remarkable behaviors mm. and that's really interesting it's a bit of a segue james i want to sort of move into you know you're a tour guide up here you're very um you know well renowned tour guide for your interpretive skills and F&Q i wanted to nature tours, like fnq nature tours instagram facebook business card <laughs> website there you go you can either travel with james or he's offside of matt good <laughs> tour guide as well but anyway <laughs> mate i just want to touch base on some of the animals that you generally see on tour i understand you obviously do an afternoon nocturnal tour of the daintree daintree exclusive tour and uh, obviously we head up to the tablelands as well not to mention the multi-day tours so do you want to just give us a bit of a rundown some of the animals that you do see on tours and and some of the ones that really uh, you're able to connect with very very well yeah well i guess for us being in the you know we live in a region that's very green and very pristine we're very lucky we live in an area where two world heritage areas come together so the first thing that I would bring to mind for especially for for listeners that are coming from overseas and, and hoping to travel to North Queensland one day is that we truly are in a biological hotspot. So for any nature enthusiasts at all, whether you love diving out in the Great Barrier Reef or whether you just want to find yourself a deep-seated position in the oldest rainforest in the world and listen to what happens around you, this is certainly a location where you can um, you know, you can chase those dreams. So personally for me, what really jumps out for our guests is anything that they can't see back home, you know, and we're lucky in Australia, you know, we have a lot of our our rare and unusual marsupials that have been around for that sort of 35, 40 million year period. So we've got koalas and wombats and lots of lovely, wonderful uh, macropods and marsupials that call Australia home that a lot of people won't see. But even for our Australian travellers, Australian travellers visiting us here in North Queensland, you can really take that a step further because we're in a bioregion that's a part of a you know Gondwan and relic rainforest that's been surviving in you know, very small fragmented areas for millions of years. So what we find up here is truly unique, and uh, the the rate of endemism up here is kind of mind blowing. And I think that's one of the greatest reasons to be a tour guide up here is that you can run into, in, in a single day, you can find yourself watching an Australian platypus. And then five minutes later, and this happened to me last week, five minutes later, you're looking at, you know, one of the only two species of tree kangaroos in Australia. And watching a tree kangaroo come down from a tree and a platypus swimming in a creek, and then one hour down the road, you can see a southern cassowary. You've got these remarkable opportunities. I struggle a bit with favourites. I'll have a hard time with favourites. I mean, I know you and I, Matt, we're a 
big sucker for the birds. I love I love birds, and I just love how we have, you know, almost 400 birds that we can see throughout the year up here. That's I mean, how do you beat that? You know, you you really can't beat that. But but yeah, for our for our, our guests and our friends coming to Far North Queensland, animals like the southern cassowary. It's a member of the ratite family. It's it's uh, to see one in person. I, I remember one of the first experiences I had seeing a cassowary walk towards me, and, and I had this incredible memory of watching Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park in the scene where the, the, the children are hiding in, I think it was like a communal kitchen, and this velociraptor just runs straight towards these, these kids. And when you're seeing a southern cassowary walk towards you in a forest or in a beach, the way that it moves looks so primordial and, and ancient and it, it truly is a living dinosaur. So if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about some some pretty cool animals that I have an attachment to, it's hard to go past the southern cassowary. Um, as soon as you step foot into the wet tropics, you're in a, a nine thousand square kilometer area of rainforest that's cut off from the rest of the world and, and cut off from the rest of Australia. You know, if you drive half an hour to the west, you're you know, you better have a boat because you're in the ocean. And then if you travel a short way north or, or west, you know, you're in the savannah. And, and yeah, we have this this little pocket of, of incredible biodiversity and, and a cassowary is one of plenty of animals. But let me, let me for example, tell you when I first uh, stumbled upon the cassowary plum, which you'll know well of, Matt, being a tour guide up there. So the first time I saw a cassowary plum and I, and I looked up, the properties online and found that it was extremely um, poisonous. And um, I, I even had a chemical engineer one day that was with me on tour and we looked up the some of the chemicals in the fruit and I couldn't find this information online, but apparently one of the chemicals is called abronum and it causes, uh, it, it prevents protein synthesis occurring in your organs. So it's like this really nasty fruit that no other animals in the world can successfully eat so for our friends out there that haven't seen one imagine a beautiful like navy to metallic blue oval it's it's kind of the shape of an avocado and it's perfectly smooth and when you see one on the rainforest floor you instantly your eyes draw to it you think what is that that looks like a gemstone it's so pretty and my first thought when I saw one was how is something this tasty looking sitting on the rainforest floor with no bite marks? Like where is the evidence that every animal came down from the trees last night to eat this thing? It's like a blue mango. Get into it. Like why are you not eating this thing? I want to pick it up. <laughs> and yeah, like like I said, over time I got to, to read a bit into it and then yeah, I had this, this chemical engineer one day give me this really wonderful tip. And she sent me a, a link in the emails, which I think I've still got. It's it's really really cool. So what happens to to other animals is they either you know they either suffer a very sort of slow painful consequence or they die from eating it. And I've even had a really nasty experience myself swimming in a creek where underneath the creek was um, like hundreds of cassowary plums that had just gone rotten in the water, and I felt incredibly sick for about two days because I, I was possibly drinking the water swimming in and out and I had water in my mouth and I was just being playful. So back, back to my back to my original point though, when I first saw this amazing blue tropical fruit on the ground, 
I immediately grabbed it and started opening it up to have a look. And I noticed that the seed was enormous on this thing. So mm. if you look at how much fruit is contained in the actual, um, you know, product itself, it looks like maybe less than 10% is actual fruit. The rest of this product is all seed. So my immediate thought was what a perfect design. This plant has a huge seed that's poisonous to other animals and it has enslaved, that's the word I'm choosing to use very particularly here, enslaved the cassowary to do its bidding. And the cassowary, because there's only such a small amount of fruit contained in this product, that means that the cassowary has to eat more and more of these big fruits mm. in order to maintain its nutritional value. And at the same time, the plant is having these huge seeds with a much better chance of survival, I imagine, because so much more nutrients and, and protein and, you know, stored inside this seed. And, and of course, the cassowary also can walk a couple of kilometres in a day and then the seed is incubated in this warm bowel of this large bird and then maybe a couple of hours later it's dispersed somewhere in the forest with a much better chance of survival. And, and that, that thought that a plant or a tree has enslaved an animal to do its bidding, that was just one of the most fascinating things that I um, was exposed to when I first started guiding in the wet tropics. And there must be millions of examples going on all around us all the time of these symbiotic or semi-symbiotic relationships between plants and animals that will either increase the lifespan or the, or the, the chance of survival for certain animals. Like in the case of the cassowary plum, what happens to that tree if we have no cassowaries? Mm. Like it's a it's exactly. 100% investment in one particular species. So although when times are good and we don't have massive cyclones and fires, the cassowaries can breed with minimal competition. And at the moment, I think their numbers are well above what it says in the books because we haven't had huge floods and we haven't had devastating yeah. cyclones. But if the cassowaries were to disappear, so would this tree. So with that investment comes vulnerability. And that's just such a cool little balance of nature to, to see how things rely on each other and how certain creatures or plants can excel given the conditions of their, you know, the friends around them that they're using to survive. I think that's super, super cool. It is damn cool. And the thing that comes to my mind when you're talking about that is it's like I wonder how long it could possibly take the cassowary plum to change, evolve without the cassowary being around and I wonder if it could still eventually be around over a certain period of time or, you know, maybe laying dormant for some time. I don't, I don't know. Like to me, my, my mind goes, oh, I want to know, is it able to um, evolve and change without that cassowary reliance and then how long could that possibly take? What does that look like? Um, well, you've yeah. got to remember if the fruit falls from the tree, yeah. the seed's got like a 4% chance of germination. So it, it, it will surely survive enough to have the chance to evolve, you would assume, Do you uh, that given that they found over a large area. The Idiospermum australiensis that was discovered or rediscovered in the 1970s in Hutchinson Creek up there, that was surviving uh, because it was an, along a creek line. So if you think the tree is sitting above a creek and the fruit falls into the rapids it's it, you know the fruit is torn off by the movement of the water and the rocks 
and then it lands in a spot with a bit of sunshine and a bit of soil. And, you know, I, I'm sure it wouldn't go extinct, but right now it's one of the most common trees that you see in the rainforest. It certainly wouldn't be a common tree anymore, but it would survive in certain areas where, yeah, like Matt said, where those seeds were could could just find a little bit of fortune. But do you know what makes me really curious is was the seed always that big? You know, if if it wasn't toxic mm. and the seed was a lot smaller, lots of other animals could consume it. And how many years did it take for that relationship to yeah. occur? That's just the most impressive thing. And, yes. and, and, and the beauty is you will never know. And that's one of the wonderful things about spending time outside. You will never have all the answers. And that is great. <laughs> It is, it is Isn't it great? I love that. You can let your imagination. Otherwise, go. otherwise, what? Yeah, what? Fun. What's there left to kind of explore? You know, one one day, I remember this reminds me of a story, Jody, where I had I had a customer on board one day, and he was uh, really just wanted to identify absolutely everything. He was he really wanted uh, scientific names and common names more so than really learning about the species themselves. And I said, you know, and I said, what what is in a label? You know, what what is mm. in a, a label? Ooh, it's just a yeah. name that we've provided with a certain animal so that we can categorize it, so that it makes sense in our textbooks, so that we can attach it to a family group. But really the beauty is in the mysteries and the things that we don't know. And the you know, animals constantly, like wild animals are always they're always proving the textbooks wrong. You know, just recently crocodiles breeding oh, season yeah. and and that, that's that's a wonderful thing about that that word wild is it genuinely is wild and that's that's what's so mystifying and so attractive about spending time outdoors. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. If you talk to some of the yeah, crocodile right. experts, they'll say, you know, crocodiles, saltwater crocodiles, you know, only breeding in the, you know, the start of summer, but if you if you look at what we see on the Danger River on our tours, we see a lot of interesting foreplay and a lot of bubble blowing and going underwater and potentially breeding completely outside the, the breeding season. And that behaviour is supposed to be non-existent. And here's an interesting um, observation, and that's because most of the studies that you're seeing in textbooks, those animals have been studied in confined uh, areas, you know, in, yes. in wildlife parks where they're readily available. I mean, how do you how do you take a new boat into a new river and expect the crocodiles to to stand around and pose and tell you what they've been up to last night with you know with Charlie and Mary up the road there? You you really um, can't do that research unless you have a, a, a situation that allows for that kind of um, you know technology or that kind of data to be you know to, mm. to, for that research to be undertaken. You have a look at a, a crocodile, the start with a crocodile, they say it has the strongest bite um, around 3,500 pounds per square inch. I thought it was 2,500. That's exactly right. And some <laughs> people say it's 5,000 pounds per square inch because no one actually knows because yeah, how do you get a crocodile to bite as hard as you can? Do you say, listen here, mate, we're going to put this um, this gauge uh, inside your mouth and we're going to get you to bite as hard as you possibly can. It's, it's impossible, sure right? You'd have, to do it with <laughs> You'd have to do it with 100 different crocodiles. All I was going to say, how do you know? You'd yeah. have to pick 
every single one of them would have to be above five meters with with a full set of teeth in the you know grown up in the same conditions and you'd have to do it a hundred times to work out an average and maybe then it would be conclusive or at least close to it but that's that's never going to happen all we have is rough estimates that are still exciting figures and i did watch um, one of adam britain's um documentaries and it was it was uh in the low 3000s and i did watch that footage and they did have a you know like a pressure plate which they they did it about four or five times and put into the crocodile's mouth but that crocodile is really not behaving in a normal situation either imagine how hard that crocodile would bite down if it was a big barramundi so you know it's it's difficult to test that but it does give us a rough idea that crocodiles have the strongest jaw pressure in the world and that's all we need to know hey <laughs> don't go swimming yeah. if they had a big green tea green sea turtle in their mouth they're going to show you how hard they can bite <laughs> that's well that's it and one thing james i think um what you were saying in regards to a lot of research done it, it is done in a, a captive or confined either captive or in the wild in a confined space but only in a very very short period of time yeah. Um, and then obviously there are there is a lot of research done that's going uh, like for a very long time, years and years and years and years, and it's collecting data and and yes, the information that comes forward changes. However, the people writing certain textbooks or animal books may not necessarily be up with a lot of the current research, mm. and they might be just regurgitating some of the old stuff as well. And so for people like ourselves who love to learn and, and want to dive into um, th- with our curiosity to find out the juicy stuff, a lot of the times we can't find it um, unless we, we come across certain people who are out in the field or have scientific papers that they may have written but not so widely um, known to the general public or, or even myself. I mean, I don't go hunting for a lot of scientific papers, but I, when I do find them, I'm just like, why isn't this sort of stuff available for yeah. people to learn? So then um, here we are, we're, we're educating. So you on your tours and me within the school environment, wouldn't it be great to have more of that scientific papers available in a in a context or in a, a way that general people Easy can to read. digest. Easy, thank you. Easy <laughs> yeah. to digest. Easily so then they can fall in love with it or they can have their curiosity spark to then, you know, want to protect and and – um, well, it's good to yeah. have everything in moderation. You know, I, I don't read as, as much as I used to. It's so many other things happening in my life right now. But in my sort of from my early 20s to my late 20s, I was addicted to reading, couldn't stop reading. And I found that when my passion for wildlife really developed at that age, I found it very easy to retain information. And I loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh, for the first time, yeah. I remember everything that I read. And that was so exciting to be at that age and to find, you know, that there's something huge out there waiting for me. Um, but everything has to be sort of in moderation. You know, if you've got great textbooks and you're heading out into the wild, that's awesome. But go and go and watch and see for yourself. And you might find that it's, it's mm-hmm. not all that right. Or like what we're trying to do in our, um, you know, in our tour operation at the moment is combine experiences where guests can go out with conservationists and experts. So here you are, you've got the books, you've got your own observation, you've got the opportunity for photography and you have scientists or even citizen scientists that can tell you exactly what these animals have been doing for the last 10 or 20 years. So on that topic of having that readily available, imagine if every single person who 
traveled to a new area to to witness new animals and new species and, and new um, you know wild experiences imagine if at, at your you know the touch of a button you could hook up with scientists and researchers or even volunteers you know with a phd that can take you out and really show you the you know the good stuff and and the best thing is it's 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 minimal impact so there are certain areas in the wild that um, are very popular for the natural beauty or the natural landscapes and you know i think the daintree um maybe it was 2019 there are just under a million visitors to the daintree national park and um, as a conversation I have, I've had with Matt many times, the wet tropics is 9,000 square kilometres. The Daintree is a very small portion of that. I think it's maybe 1,500 or smaller. So what you're looking at is a tiny fragment that gets a huge amount of visitation, and, and that's just advertising and marketing, and that's, uh, that's fantastic. But then you've got all of these other huge areas that have the exact same biological value the same you know evolutionary story but there no one really knows about them. so w- wouldn't it be a ama- mm. click of a button that you can you can hook up with some some scientists and go out into those less known areas and and find yourself not only enjoying an experience that's completely unique but you get to contribute to the to the wealth uh, of the region and that's that's my big dream jody is to not just travel to a, a region and take a wonderful photo, but know that when you left, like your, you know, the money that you paid to go out on that experience directly goes to, you know, the the support or recovery of that species or that area, that mm. experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you're already introducing that within your company already, James. And we sort of and being able to. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think that's amazing. One thing I wanted to actually go back on, um, and it's something that is really important to me when I'm out experiencing wildlife, is exactly what you said is um, you got to experience the tree kangaroo, I think it was the tree kangaroo you mentioned, without a camera and just being able to actually immerse yourself into the moment. I, I want to know what, what, what were you thinking, what were you feeling, what was sort of going on for you there because you didn't have a camera to be distracted. When you're, you know, watch, watching something, if you're not, you're not concentrating on shutter speeds and aperture and am I, am I eye level or can I get better lighting or is this tree in the way, you, you start asking 100 questions. So, yeah, we were looking at, yeah, tree kangaroos and, and some birds and I give my customers a quick few pointers on, on where it is and, and, you know, what settings to use. And then I kind of take a step back, grab the binoculars and just start enjoying it for myself. And you start asking yourself all the questions. Is this is this male? Is this an adult? I wonder how old it is. Can I see any, you know, other, you know, is there any discoloration in the fur? You know, what's your face look like? Have you got any, you know, facial mites or do you have any any visible ticks? Can I get a bit of an idea of what your life looks like? You know, like, have you had a hard life? Are you fast and active and agile? Or are you sort of lazing along like it's a really hot day and you've just had a siesta and you're just chilling and you're in a tree that's already full of food and you don't really care? <laughs> so I guess, yeah, you, you ask a lot of questions and then naturally you start to develop theories on on what it might be like and, and, and you start to – this is when you start to match the things that you've read in books with the things that you see and then you develop like, oh, oh so I know that – their fur is this thick thick for this reason. But look at the way 
that tree kangaroo just avoided that wait a while. And you think, wow, this is, it all starts to make sense. Yes, love that, love that. And with your, when you did your bird challenge last year, this is something I challenged Matt in last year because um, you guys were into that, oh, yep, okay, we've seen that species, we've done that, we've taken a photo of this, yeah, excellent, we've gotten it, I'm going to beat him. And, yeah. and I was like, yeah, but 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 what about what about the other stuff, learning about the, the bird calls and the different calls at different times of the years and where are they sitting and what time are they sitting there? See, something I learned when I worked with birds in the captive environment a long time ago, 20 years ago I started, is that I knew where our birds were sitting and this was an open immersive um, exhibit. So if I notice a bird that was sitting in a different spot that isn't usually sitting there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we would, as a, a wildlife keeper, would go, okay, there's some, let, let me just double-check this particular bird. But in the wild, uh, applying that same um, stuff into going out into the wild is learning and getting to know, okay, at four o'clock in the afternoon, the wampu pigeons start to come down, but only around about the November, December time at this particular spot with that tree. And the reason why is because of all the fruits and this and this and that. Whereas in January, February, you're actually not going to find them here. But if you go 100 metres down the road, that's where we're going to find them. And so that's what I think is the magic of really really observing and yes you've got the knowledge behind you as well but then observing it into in the wild and that's something that I'm absolutely enjoying being having our, our rainforest at Melanda is sitting there at all sorts of different times of day and watching what the birds are doing but then noticing the paddy melons and what's happening for them and then what time the possums are actually coming out but then the possums may be coming out at a certain time in October, November, December, but then in the middle of the year, oh, no, don't even bother looking for them until 10 p.m. Yeah, and then the moon will put them off because oh, it's so bright for them. Just, yeah. You know everything, the moon comes out and then it all disappears and you're like, you have to reset yeah. the theories again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you're right. We, <laughs> so, we, we lost out on that because, uh, and I think we both felt it, we, we really, we were engaged in the challenge for the purpose of identifying as many birds as we could, but we did miss out on, gosh, some of the birds I saw, I was running, you know. I was like, I need to see this before it gets dark. I've <laughs> four hours to this goddamn swamp, and if I don't see this, you know, pal-vented bush hen right now, I'm in trouble. So, you know, we we kind of had no choice. But and it was great to experience that as, as a race and as a challenge, but – we, you know, bo- both of us as as guides and as lovers of wildlife, and, and all of us, you know, we we do want a much deeper connection. And I think that was a great uh, that was a great way to to have fun. And we we learned a lot of different skills, um, especially with migratory birds, because we really had to you know find as many as we could. But yeah, sitting down with uh, you know with a cup of tea and, and listening to the sounds around you that that is definitely a much more rewarding experience. But but like I said, everything everything in moderation. I, I really love to do both um, and learning about the call mm. and what birds are doing at different times of the day. And just on that on that trip I was on last week, I was having a conversation with these these two um, conservationists that have played huge uh, key roles in 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 wildlife conservation in australia they were um you know they, they were talking to me about you know how we see the health of, of you know what's around us like do we do we see our our rainforest as being very healthy mm-hmm. and and i and i said to them that's one of the most exciting things is monitoring 
the the health of the environment around you. That's so exciting to see. For example, areas that were were logged on the Atherton Tablelands, where they had you know very aggressive logging from you know from the the late eighteen hundreds and, and you know for about a century. Now you're seeing areas where there's a lot of um, you know government subsidy programs and conservation groups. You know, like with with Justin's pod, podcast and Rainforest Rescue and and heaps of different groups that are either retaining or buying back crown land and setting up these areas where there's wildlife refuges or or, um, or native trees being planted there and all of a sudden you see the wildlife return which is the biggest reward for volunteers involved in these projects but for someone like myself when we're spending every day in the same places every day down at a lumber pocket or every day walking around lake Berene, you do notice changes um you do notice changes not just seasonal changes, but you noticed when there's been a big flood or when there's been a, a huge environmental impact and you do feel a genuine sadness for, you know, for all of the animals in that area that might mm. be suffering because of, you know, fragmentation because they're, they're very isolated and surrounded by farms and roads. Or it could just be that, you know, there's there's been a huge flood and a lot of the food on the ground has been washed into rivers and creeks and now the animals have to compete with each other and you do get a general sense for when animals are aggressive when they're anxious when they're stressed you might think you know every every animal has a bit of a you know character you know sloths are lazy and the bee is busy but all animals when you watch them enough you can see that they're the way that they're behaving is a direct impact of their environment and if you watch them enough you can start to pick up on that and then you as an individual can monitor the wealth of what's happening around you as well and 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 I'll take it one step further and that's also thinking about your health you know do you live in an area where there's a lot of pollution do you live in an area where there's a lot of fresh water you know i find that in the areas where the animals and the wildlife are happy and healthy then so am i and that's yes, absolutely. That's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Biodiversity and and healthy ecosystems and and healthy us. Yeah, for sure. And that's one thing I teach the kids when we're at school is like, do you have lots of insects around? Do you get to see all the lizards and the geckos in your garden? Or the frogs come out when it rains. The frogs come out. Yeah. And the noise of the frogs. And is there is there you know have you got weeds popping up in your garden, you know, just like stuff like that. It's like, cool, so there's not much poison going on around there. It's a healthy habitat. The animals are happy. You've got the insects. The flowers are blooming. And and when you – one thing I – even just thinking about that, it makes me smile. Like I just feel so much love when I think about wildlife and I think about um, the frogs coming out at night and jumping to catch an insect or the little geckos on the wall um and they're trying to catch their insect and the way they're sizing it up or seeing the skinks every morning when i have my cup of tea and they're <laughs> playing and they're and they're and they're fighting in the garden over that particular hot rock because the sun's shining on them or the butcher bird flying down like it just fills my soul and i just feel so much love and it it, it makes me feel good personally and i'm 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 full and then i get on with my day and i think that's really important is being able to find your little sanctuary of some sort within nature, whether it is your backyard or it's your watching. Your back cave. Yeah, the back cave. <laughs> but it's, it, it might even just be watching the kookaburra that always comes and sits on the power lines out the front, for example, but you see it every day. You go, well, oh, good morning, and, you know, you start talking to the kookaburra. 
people have always had a connection to wild animals you know you look into look into history look into indigenous cave paintings you know in in areas around the kimberley you know in areas where they you got a 40,000 year old you know the bradshaw paintings look look up you know look look into egyptian hieroglyphics there's always been a huge connection between you know between human beings and animals and and you know maybe it is about monitoring the wealth of you know your your lifestyle and the people around you but i also think we just have a there's just a real genuine happiness to see other creatures that we can relate to that are um that are healthy i think that makes everyone feel pretty good yeah yeah for sure Freaking love that. I love this conversation. It's so like, oh, it makes me want to cuddle you all. <laughs> the magic of wildlife. <laughs> yeah, that's like a success story. When you mentioned the rain and the frogs, again, I feel exactly the same. When you get that first big storm and you hear the frogs, that is the most amazing sleep you'll ever have because when it's raining, oh, you feel love it. It's like Mother Nature is just oozing with goodness. And, and and that water is going to mm. all the right places, you know, and, and water is just one resource in the in the giver of life. But that that is the most amazing feeling. You really do feel a, a dense happiness. Um, and I think of many situations mm. in my life where I've felt like I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by wildlife and they are some of the happiest moments for sure. Absolutely. And nature is always whispering. You've just got to... You just got to take the time to literally sit in it, close your eyes, smell it, hear it, feel it, and yeah, it's it's constantly it's constantly whispering at you, and that's what I love. And and so James, like we we don't have too much longer left um, for our podcast today. I literally could talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, but with with um with your tours currently at the moment, um, you're still you're you're getting you're rebuilding i suppose after a, a quite a, a period of time not being able to show people our beautiful natural world um but you have done amazing things virtually as well especially at the beginning of um all the lockdowns and everything and i really enjoyed watching that and so your passion to me your passion is 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 real and your passion is like you actually are out in nature with your kids your family every weekend um, is there is there something that you you really really um, oh, what's, what am I trying to say like you really love doing with the family and also on your own in regards to connecting with nature? Oh yeah. Um, well, well, to be honest, if I had to, and and just just this morning, knowing that I was going to be chatting with you guys, I started thinking about some of the things I really wanted to share, and. You know, when I when I find myself at a really happy place in nature, I really can't describe what it is that's most enjoyable. Like sitting sitting by a creek, you know, even just feeling the sun on my legs while my head's in the shade is just an enjoyable experience. You know, having having greenery, having the temperature drop because you're in a deep forest, you know, and noticing that you've just, you know, driven from the city where you're surrounded by a lot of sort of concrete and structure and it's very hot. And then you drive half an hour out into a creek. The fact that all of a sudden you're so much cooler, you almost don't need to get in the water. Like just that is exciting. I really get excited by that. Just the, just the the temperature dropping, and you know, sitting by a stream, listening to the creek, but not actually focusing on anything. I guess it's kind of like this might sound a bit strange, but it's almost like meditation where you have no thought at all, 
not thinking about the animals and not thinking about, wow, this place is beautiful. I wonder if, you know, I wonder who lives over there. I wonder what people visit here. But just just sit there and think about nothing. And that is that is a really nice that's something I really, really like to do, which, you know, we don't, we don't do a hell of a lot of it because, you know, we've got the kids and we're having, you know, we're always playing and we're just trying to get the kids involved in the water and they love getting on the snorkel and goggles and identifying fish and turtles and spent an hour at the binder obsessed with an eel, which is super, super cool. But personally for me, <laughs> I'm, I'm super happy to sit in a spot and maybe it's because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my mid-30s now and life's sort of changing. I'm really happy just to sit in a spot. And, and even if I don't see anything and I don't see lots of wild animals, I love just sitting there and having no thoughts at all because that is a, a therapy all on its own. If you're, if you're really trying to see as many things as you can or get amazing photos, you're still busy. You're still, you know, it's, it's your hobby and it's you're busy doing, but there is a there is a, another concept to be grasped here, which is just to to, mm-hmm. to have nothing on your mind, it just just the sound of the water and the wind. Yeah. And I think you can definitely relate to that. Yeah. So that that's absolutely. I'm I'm the weird one who who loves the stillness. Yeah. I I, I totally get you. I can feel it. I can smell. I can see it. And it's just sitting there. And it's like literally you have no thoughts and you're right like meditation actually a lot of people believe that meditation has to be done with your eyes closed and no thoughts or whatever else and you're constantly trying to tell yourself stop 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 thinking I'm I'm meditating but being out in in exactly what you just described is it's just it's just about stillness it's about being in the moment and if a thought does pop up great observe it but you're still so still that it just disappears do you fall asleep often when you're doing that like do, you, do I? Yeah. I get I get super relaxed. I'm in a trance. I put myself in a trance all the time in in the rainforest. <laughs> I fall asleep. Yeah. It so me and Christine says, "How you got a gift for sleeping?" But that's if I'm laying there in a in a you know on a creek and if I'm not if I'm not watching the kids and I'm not taking care of anything else. If I just lay there and think about nothing, I get so comfortable I fall asleep. And then when I wake up, you know maybe only five ten minutes later, I feel amazing. <laughs> You know, it's just a yep. it's it's a nature nap. It's a nature nap. Everyone <laughs> needs a nature nap. And you just put yourself in this perfect meditation to this happy little nature nap. You're ready to go. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah, cool. for sure. Any- so all your tours are starting to get back up and running um, now, James, and obviously yeah. sharing our amazing um, environment and, and nature with all the guests that come to North Queensland. What's what's ahead for you? Well, yeah, we we've survived some of the toughest challenges I think any any business can survive, and I've watched a lot of my friends go under, and a lot of competitors that we're friends with. You know, every everyone that works in the industry, I have a lot of respect for. There's no there's no sort of um, you know nasty rivalry between us. I'm very passionate about taking care of all of us operators and, and the region. I think if we're all ambassadors for the region, then it, it only benefits the region itself, and that's something that. When you um, talk about Justin, thing, I've heard him say many, many times. One of the first things that he said, I connected with him one day when we met on a boat doing a cruise, and you know, he said, "If people are visiting the region and they're leaving happy with wonderful memories and they've had a great experience, then then that's a big win for all of us." And I said, "My man, you're the guy. Like, I really have a lot of time for you." So, <laughs> essentially, for us, you know, we've 
we've been through the the ringer and now we're you know we're still alive we've had to do crazy things to survive and you know we've sold vehicles we've you know i've got two jobs but we are we are here we're you know we've supported ourselves through it as a family we've come out the other end and now all we have to look forward to is um, is doing what we love the most going back to work showing people from all over the world our beautiful backyard so that's what we have in store is is more of what we love and i tell you what i don't know how many people can say this but i can't wait to get back to work Jody. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe maybe you can teach your guests how to nature nap eh? <laughs> experience the stillness yeah yeah maybe start some meditation <laughs> there you go look at that um, we we obviously could have spoken a lot more to you james but i'm going to let you go because we've come to the end of our hour and um, I believe that there's there'll be definitely part three because you have so much knowledge to um, to give and and just your passion as well. It's 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 really um, what's that word? I can't speak tonight. Um, it contagious is that the right word? Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. <laughs> just not like COVID. Your enthusiasm is captivating, contagious, and fulfills our heart. Aww. So thank you very much, James Watch. God Almighty, God. is that what you were trying to look at? Yeah, <laughs> right in the feels. All right. I've just been sitting back for the last half hour thinking of that sentence. I appreciate the chance to dive into the things I love. So that was great. It's good, very refreshing, and uh, I appreciate your time. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Yeah, no, thank you for dropping by. And I love these kind of conversations. They're the, they're the deep ones. They're my kind of conversation. So thank you for sharing. And we'll we'll see you soon. You take my care. Pleasure. And um, I'll put all the links of where everyone can find you again, James, and hopefully they'll, um, they'll get to experience one of your tours one day because, yeah, what you have to offer is amazing. So you Perfect. take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. Catch you later. <laughs> Wow, another awesome wild chat, which I hope you really enjoyed because I can tell you now I absolutely did. I would really love to connect with you all as well. So please don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram, which you can get the links in our podcast show notes. I have them right there for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us by spreading the word. You can also take a screenshot of the episode you just listened to, share it on your socials and tag us in it, of course. We would also love a review. If you have time, please jump on your podcast channel you just listened to us on and give us a review, give us some feedback and don't forget to click that big subscribe button which of course helps us spread the word even further and for you to also be notified for any upcoming episodes. If you are somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who would love to be on our Australian Wildlife Education Wild Chats please send them my way or get in contact with me. Also in the show notes, you can find all those details on how to get in contact. I love chatting and also learning from others who can showcase their knowledge, their expertise, but also their passion and any projects that they might have going on. So please reach out to me as I would love to get you on our podcast. But otherwise, I hope you're all amazing. I hope you're all having a great day. And I will, you'll be hearing from me in the next wild chat. See you next week. Bye.